I'm Brian Sudbrink, and you're listening to the Layman's Bible Podcast. Imagine traveling back in time, say, to the time of Abraham, or even the time of David. And imagine trying to explain modern technology to these people. Now to them, this would probably seem strange and foreign, and they might be quick to note it as magic or sorcery or you know some something like that because they couldn't fathom such things in everyday life but we also have to stop and consider that during their time some of the customs and the practices and the things that went on in their everyday life and especially that of the surrounding nations they seem just as foreign to us as our world would be to them so if we're going to take a look at some of these foreign religions, it might be helpful to take a step back and just kind of consider the context in which the nation of Israel found themselves in. What were the common practices of the surrounding nations? And when we do this, it helps us to understand more about Yahweh, about how unique he is and why God would have uh, brought such harsh charges against his people when they sought after these other gods. And so, in this episode, let's take a look at several of the common threads through the ancient religions of this area. To start with, let's go over this concept that scholars call the Great Symbiosis. So, it was generally thought in those times that the gods created everything. And after they created things, they were thought of as, you know, they built houses, they harvested food, and, you know, they lived life, and they were fully capable of doing that on their own. But at some point, the gods got tired of doing all this. They wanted to live in luxury, and they didn't want to have to do all this work. And so it was thought that these gods created man to do all this labor for them, to provide all this stuff so that they could exist in luxury. And so essentially man was looked at as a slave labor force. And so this phrase, the great symbiosis, it, at its basic core uh, concept is that you have this codependent relationship between the gods and the man. The gods depended upon the people to provide food and drink and then temples for housing and all this other things for the lifestyle that they wanted. And in return, the gods would take care of the people because they were their vested interests. The gods would protect them. The gods would maintain justice and such things. But they didn't maintain justice and do those things because they loved the people. They did it to protect their investments. Now, by contrast, we see that Yahweh has no needs. For example, if we look in the book of Acts, specifically in chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, where Paul is talking to uh, the Athenians, and he tells them that the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
So Yahweh is unique in this aspect. He has no needs, but he still interacts with his people. And Yahweh takes care of his people. He provides protection, but this is not because he wants something from them. It is simply an act of grace. And he maintains justice, by contrast, because God himself is justice. This is an extension of his character. Now next, let's consider the concept of that of the sacred. So, for example, the temples uh, were, were seen generally as the gods taking up a residence among the people that served their interest. And in more specific terms, temples were looked at as the meeting place wherein the human realm could intersect with the divine realm, and in some views, uh, the underworld as well. And so essentially to visit the temple was to gain a glimpse of the habitation of God on earth. And this represented the place where the presence of the deity existed. And it that presence created a sacred space, and that space was to be treated with the utmost respect and honor. And because of this, we see the development of various rituals and procedures and all other sorts of things and these were intended to establish and maintain the proper boundaries between the sacred and the human realm. And these rituals and procedures, and etc., these were taken very seriously. In fact, oftentimes um, the consequences were very dire, and in some cases even resulted in the death of an individual who violated these customs. Now, on the flip side, uh, these rituals and procedures were done because man intended to gain the favor of a deity. Now, specifically, uh, one of these uh, concepts of these procedures was that of being consecrated. Now, consecration was this process of procedures that prepared someone, say like a priest, to come in contact with that which was holy, that which was within the sacred realm. Now, in the case of Israel, they operated with an understanding that people and even objects could exist in one of three distinct states. One, unclean, two, clean, and three, that of holy. Now, holy was the state in, only, in which only God existed, and only God was considered holy. And in some cases, you could probably present a case that those who God made holy could also uh, exist in that state. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, that of being unclean, uh, examples of this would be animals that God uh, told Israel that they could not eat. And even things like touching dead bodies made someone unclean. And so they would have to go under this process of being consecrated to make them clean. Now, also within this concept of sacred space, it is interesting to note that among these nations, they considered their gods to be local in their scope. And this had less to do with the fact that gods were limited in their jurisdictions and far more about that the gods were just simply only concerned with the people who served their interest. And so they just happened to be that the ones that served their interest were the ones around where their presence was, the temple, 
and uh, by extension, the power and the blessings of these gods were thought only to extend to those in their presence. Now, by similarity, we see that Yahweh does dwell among his people. You know, in the Old Testament, he had the tabernacle, and he has actually established a sacred space. So within the tabernacle, he had the holy place and even the most holy place. And Yahweh also instructs his people with uh, detailed instructions uh, for consecration and even purification. And we also see that uh, there were severe consequences for violation of this. Uh, for example, the high priest, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, uh, the nation of Israel got to where they had this custom where they would tie a rope around the high priest's waist. And at some point, if the rope went limp and there was no response, they knew that Yahweh had struck him dead. He had violated um, this sacred space. Now, by contrast, uh, we see that Yahweh's scope, his jurisdiction, and his authority, and even his uh, even his will and his plan, they are not limited to a local place. It is global. But we also see, uh, for example, in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors, Yahweh concerns himself with sinners. He, Yes, he does not tolerate sin, but he does desire for them to turn away from their sin, and he engages them where they are. And the idea is that, yes, he will engage the sinners, but it is with the intent that they will not remain in that state of sin. Now, one other thing to point out uh, that is interesting about these sacred spaces. Now, these nations, oftentimes where they had the altar, was actually on an, an elevated uh, space. In other words, there were commonly steps leading up to it, and that was to signify the importance and the superiority of that particular space. But by contrast, we see Yahweh giving his people the specific command. Uh, if we go into Exodus chapter 20, we see God giving the instruction to his people that they were not to have steps leading up to the altar like the other religions. They were to be different. Now, moving on from here, let's talk a little bit about this concept of the community of gods. Now, in those days, it was believed that identity for both people and the gods were found in community and the relationship that they belonged in within that community, as opposed to uh, being found in their individuality. Now, this belief gave rise to uh, what we see as polytheism. There were all these different gods, and within that, uh, was this thought of there was a hierarchy of gods. Now, it is interesting uh, to note uh, in one commentary be, uh, points out that because of this polytheism and this hierarchy, because that was so common amongst the nations, one commentator suggests that Israel probably struggled to transition over to this idea and belief and way of life to just a single god. And while I consider this next statement to be more of conjecture, it is still an interesting thought. But this commentator suggests that the idols that Israel found themselves with 
because all of that belief system was so common amongst the nations that these idols may have not been so much a replacing of gods, that of Yahweh, but so much as bringing subservient gods alongside them. The, this idea that they're gravitating back to this idea that there is this hierarchy of gods. Now, again, that's conjecture, but it is an interesting thought nonetheless. And within this community of gods, it was also a common belief that the gods conducted business within a council, much like a human governance. And this was rooted in that belief about how identity was established. And this council of gods, it was viewed that there was a chief god that presided over the pantheon, and that decisions were made together, not independent from one another, but they decided matters together. Now, similarly, in Israel, we see uh, scholars pointing out a sort of dif divine assembly around Yahweh, and they point this out, say, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 1, where it talks about the sons of God and even Satan coming before the presence of Yahweh. And so, yes, there is this gathering, but it's not necessarily a council. Uh, by contrast, we see that Yahweh is the one and only God, and he has full authority, and he makes decisions on his own, and he delegates activities out to these others that are within the divine assembly. And we actually see in the book of Job, for example, where Satan comes before God. Satan couldn't go out and afflict Job without coming to God and asking permission. And so Yahweh has all authority, and he has the, def the final decision. He does not have to consult anyone else. So from here, let's go on and talk about uh, the revelation and manifestations of deities. So in those days, it was generally thought that deities did not really reveal themselves or their expectations to the people. And so there was this confusion amongst the people because they never really knew specifically what the gods wanted other than this general idea that gods wanted to be pampered. And as such, the people just assumed that if someone was suffering, that that person must have offended the gods. And we'll go more in depth into that idea a little bit later in this episode. But uh, moving on from here, they also saw the celestial bodies, things like the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars. They saw them as a manifestation of these gods. Even in today, we see that carryover, the names like uh, Mars and Venus and Mercury and Jupiter, these were names of the ancient gods. Now, the most important manifestation of a god was considered to be the image, what we think of as an idol or a figurine. Now, when these images were created, it was supposed to be commissioned by the god that it was made to represent. It was made using the finest materials. And then after it was made, it was ritually energized so that this thought of that the essence of the god took up residence there. Now, this idea that the essence of the god within this image meant that this image wasn't the god itself, but rather a representation, an avatar of the god. And it was based off this 
It was an idealized representation of the god, of their identity relating to the office and role of the god, as well as the value connected with the god. And it was thought of as this image was what did the god's work on the earth. And it served as a mediator between the god and man by receiving care, like the food and drink we talked about earlier in the great symbiosis. But also it received the worship of the people on behalf of the god. And another uh, very common thing that we see in those times is this idea of a household god. And these were images that represented deceased ancestors. Now, probably the main reason uh, that these existed was to uh, show honor to their deceased ancestors. Much like in today's world, if someone were to be cremated and they put the remains into an urn and they may set it up on a mantle above a fireplace to honor their memory, that's was the, that was the primary function of these household gods, these figurines. But unlike today, it also provided a focus for these uh, rituals related to the care of the dead. Now, we will go further in detail into that later in the episode, but there were, suffice it to say for now, that there were these rituals that they had to care for the dead. That was a big thing. Now, it was also at times... Uh, these household gods were used in terms of divination. And we'll go into more detail about that as well. But, uh, but these people did this because they believed that their ancestors were able to provide protection and aid. Now, it is also interesting to note that in a marriage, when a wife married her husband, she was now bound to worship the gods of her husband rather than that of her father. But as we talked about in uh, earlier in this episode where the gods were considered local in their scope, because of that, more often than not, the gods of her husband were the same as that of the father. Now, one example that actually comes up in the Bible regarding these household gods is in Genesis chapter 31, and this is where Jacob, Leah, and Rachel are going to flee from uh, Rachel and Leah's father. Now, in this process, right before this, Rachel goes and steals the household gods of her father. And they also take other things from her father, and they sell this stuff. Now, that was a big deal. That was a big insult. Now, Rachel probably did not do this because she didn't want to worship the god of Jacob so much as based off the conversation that she has with Jacob before she does this, it was probably more so that she saw it as an entitlement to an inheritance from her father. And so she goes and she just takes it rather than asking for it. Now, after talking about all of this, let's take a step back and let's just note some contrast here with Israel and Yahweh and that Yahweh, unlike these other uh, deities who never really uh, communicated their expectations with their people and their worshipers, Yahweh set out all kinds of laws and commands to his people through the Mosaic Law. So he gave them clear direction. And amongst that is that he didn't allow worship of the created. And so, for example, when you go into the account of creation in Genesis, 
whereas the rest of these nations saw things like the sun, the moon, the planets, and stars as manifestations of God. It is interesting to note that in Genesis, God gives these things like the sun and the moon very generic names. Uh, so, for example, he calls the sun the greater light, and he calls the moon the lesser light. And parallel to that, oftentimes angels were not really given a name when they appeared to people, the exceptions being Gabriel and Michael. Now, the point I think that God was making is that without the name, it was unlikely for the people to worship them as deities. So that, in effect, he was saying, do not worship the created, you only worship me. And as we will see throughout the Old Testament, and especially here in uh, the book of Isaiah, is that Yahweh actually even condemns uh, the creation and the worship of idols. And so Israel was going to be very different than the surrounding nations. But that was what was prevalent in those days. Now, from here, let's talk a little bit about the topic of religion and magic. Now, to start off with, religion and magic weren't really considered separate pursuits. They were considered uh, basically like two strands of the same rope. They were heavily influenced by one another. So, uh, for example, with magic, it generally involved the use of power by using the name of a deity or even calling, in some cases, calling upon the deceased ancestor. Now, it should be noted that magic, the use of magic, was generally more based upon the agenda of the one trying to use it rather than the one that they were calling upon. So rather in terms of saying a good god or an evil god, it was more about what the practitioner was trying to do with that. And so, you know, this magic wasn't something inherent within that person, like a superpower, as we would might think of it today, but they were trying to wield an external source, and they were trying to do so to exercise power over someone else, and uh, they didn't really look at it in terms of uh, what we might say, you know, white magic or black magic in you know, some pop culture today, but you know, it did have good and not so good uses. I mean, magic was commonly used alongside uh, herbalists uh, for trying to treat illness. They would try to call out uh, the deity to try and exercise their power as a means to try and help those that they loved, but they could also uh, try and use it to summon and command a deity to call down curses. They would try to exercise this power as a means of uh, defeating enemies. Now, very, um, very closely related to this topic of magic was this topic of what was known as divination, and this was very common. And these, this divination was uh, rituals that were meant to provide access to information from the gods or about what the gods were doing, and. This was on the local level, and it was even on the national level. So, for example, at the national level, you know, common themes were that they tried to seek national safety and well-being dur- during times of, say, uh, an enemy coming in and trying to uh, war against them and conquer them. You know, but uh, 
maybe even at the local level, um, they sought things like omens, and they generally tried to seek these during uh, unusual events, like unusual births, uh, a deformed birth, or even unusual behavior of animals. So this was less about this idea of what we might look at it as being hocus-pocus, and it was more about them trying to make sense of the world around them. That was what they used. And when I went in and researched this more, there's this, I guess you could call it a specific branch of divination called extispacy. And the surprising thing that I learned about it is that they basically kind of viewed this as a respectable trade, much like we would think of math and science and language studies and the specific branch had to do with the um, the using well they were basically tried to look at the organs of animals and the anomalies specifically to try and uh, predict the future or get information and what was interesting about it is not only was this used by royal courts but it was also used in the lives of ordinary people. And I was very surprised to learn that it was very detailed and very systematic. In other words, you know, they had those who could do it, but there was also basically a school. They took on apprentices and they taught them how to do that. They made clay models of organs uh, to try and teach their apprentices. And each time they did it, they generated a report with what they found, and they tried to use these reports to guide uh, future inquiries. And so it's very interesting that it's not just this pulling things out of thin air. They tried to make a systematic art, a science out of it, and this was their way of obtaining wisdom and trying to make sense of their world. Now, some other aspects of the ancient religion uh, along the lines of magic and divination, uh, although it may not be as prevalent in some nations as others, but we see things like child sacrifice, we see sacred prostitution, we see a kingly role within uh, the realm of religion, we see the worship of nature, we even see a cult of the dead, where the dead were deified and worshipped, and they tried to get information from them. Uh, through things like necromancy. And this was just a way to, they saw it as a way to get information from the dead. Uh, a common way that they tried to do this is that they went out and they dug a hole in the ground, and uh, this hole was seen as a portal between the realm of the dead and the realm of the living, and they would put out things like food or drink or incense as a means to lure out their deceased ancestors and try to acquire the knowledge. Now, by contrast, uh, we know that in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Yahweh actually condemns the use of magic and divination, and even that of prostitution. Now, as one commentary points out, uh, magic was typically forbidden by Yahweh for three well, several reasons, but three that stand out as the most prevalent is that magic is this human encroachment into the divine realm. So you're not entering the presence of God on his terms. Man is trying to do it how he sees fit. And uh, closely related to that, the second big reason is that magic is used 
with the intent to manipulate the deity. And Yahweh's like, you're not going to use me. I'm not this, you know, holy vending machine that if you just do these religious things and put in uh, the right prayer quarters, you get whatever you want. And then the third big uh, problem with this is that magic involves relying on a power other than Yahweh. And that was not allowed. Uh, God wanted his people to rely on him and him alone. Now, one thing uh, else that was interesting to know, we actually see in some of the Psalms, uh, for example, Psalm 58, uh, they involved the calling down of curses on their enemies, which was a big part of magic in that world. But the difference was the focus, whereas magic was commonly used to manipulate the deity and to exercise power as the person saw fit, this, uh, in terms of a curse, the focus was more vengeance-based. Whereas Psalms, when they did this, this was more focused on letting God exact judgment because the curses that they spoke and they wrote down were generally an echo of the judgments and the punishments that God told his people would happen if they fell away. And so it's more about stepping aside and letting God be the judge rather than trying to step in and be the judge. So from here, let's talk a little bit about another concept that is that scholars call the retribution principle. Now, at its basic core, this principle is thought of as the righteous would prosper and the wicked would suffer. And because of this belief, uh, people just assumed that, one, if someone prospered, well, they must have been pleasing to the gods. But by contrast, if someone suffered, they just assumed that they had offended one or more of the gods. And not only were they being punished by the gods, but they should also be shunned by the community as well. And it didn't matter whether this, was, this offense was intentional or accidental. They just suffered. And this applied not just to the individual, but to the community, the clan, and even the family unit. Now, along with this, people believed that um, the gods administered justice amongst the human world. And that was the concern and the responsibility of the gods. But, you know, keep in mind the it was viewed that the gods didn't really do that because the gods were you know, good or evil, but it was more based upon this idea that if man were in chaos and at war with one another, they were not going to produce the food and the housing and all this other stuff for the pampered lifestyle that the gods desired. And so it was more of a, uh, well, I'll do this, but only to get what I want. Now, it was also believed that uh, injustice was you know, blamed on demons and humans rather than God. So basically any kind of suffering or injustice, they, they didn't consider that as from the gods. But they also considered that evil existed outside the jurisdiction of the gods. And so even if the gods administered justice the way it should be, it didn't eliminate suffering. Now, suffering was also... Uh, could be considered a God's inattention or a withdrawal, a favor from a person. 
as well as it could just be intentional. The gods may have been punishing them. But it was also viewed as simple circumstance or even just the nature of the world, this attitude of, well, that's just life, that just happens. And so the people in that time believed that God's administered justice on this principle that they were trying, but they were not perfect in this endeavor. And similarly, we see, uh, say, in the account of Job, Job involves this entire concept through the whole book. And we see his friends uh, presenting this ideology. And because it was so prevalent and that was what was common, it's no surprise to hear what his friends had to tell him. This idea that, well, Job, if you're suffering this much, you must have done something to offend God. And so that comes a little bit more clear to us as to why they may have done that. And, you know, Job was not the only ancient writing in that time to present this idea of, you know, those who suffered for no discernible reason. Uh, One commentator points out that there were at least four Akkadian writings and one Sumerian writing on this exact same topic. Now, as a side note, uh, the Akkadians and the Sumerians, that was the people who inhabited Mesopotamia. You had the Akkadians in the northern part and the Sumerians to the southern part. And so there's a lot of overlap between these writings and uh, the book of Job, but there's also a lot of distinct differences. And, you know, by contrast, uh, the Bible teaches nothing exists outside of Yahweh's authority. So when we look at the book of Job, it is interesting to note that uh, Satan, who was the one who afflicted Job, you know, he couldn't just do that as he saw fit. He actually had to go each time to the presence of God and ask permission of God to do anything to Job. So evil does not happen without God's approval. So next, let's talk a little bit about the concept of sin and sacrifice. Now, sacrifices uh, most often were a sacrifice of animals, and this served many roles and many purposes. Uh, Again, as we talked about in in the part on the great symbiosis, where the gods expected food and drink, these sacrifices were a means of providing that care that they expected. You know, we mentioned a little bit earlier about the household gods, which were thought of as the deceased ancestors. These sacrifices were involved in the caretaking of those ancestors. And we'll talk a little bit more detail about uh, death in the underworld uh, here in a little bit, but the general thought was that they did this to appease the dead so that they would not disturb the well-being of the living. Now, on the flip side, uh, you know, man did this because they wanted to obtain the favor of the gods, but it was also involved in uh, the preparation of rituals like divination. You know, they couldn't, without animal organs, they couldn't do uh, certain aspects of divination. Uh, Another thing is that uh, animal sacrifices accompanied rituals that were intended to remove evil influences by demons or spells. It was used to inaugurate covenants. Uh, It was involved in the ritual cleaning of a people, and in some cases, that of the temple. And one of the biggest things is that they offered these sacrifices as a means 
of appeasing the God's anger on account of sin. Now, amongst the uh, these other nations, sin was viewed primarily as an infraction against the temples and the worship practices themselves, and then from that, by extension, that of the gods. And similarly, uh, we see uh, some overlap with that of Israel. So Yahweh actually inaugurates his covenant with Abraham uh, with a sacrifice. So when we read in Genesis chapter 22, where God tests Abraham to see if he would uh, withhold his son from him, ultimately, you know, Abraham ends up sacrificing a ram. And this sacrifice is the inauguration of God's covenant with him. We also see that God uh, requires animal sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Uh, we see that throughout the entire Mosaic Law. And uh, also within the Mosaic Law, we see God giving uh, detailed instructions for the cleansing from various things, such as childbirth, uh, skin diseases, molds, and various other things. But by contrast, uh, as we stated earlier when talking about the great symbiosis, uh, Yahweh has no needs, so people didn't have to add, uh, give these animal sacrifices to provide food and drink to God, and Yahweh also uh, teaches us that he is the only God, and he condemns the worship of any other God, and recall that uh, practices like magic and divination, they were forbidden, so Israel didn't give these uh, animal sacrifices for those purposes. And when we go into, say, Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, we see that God had instructed his people not to offer food and drink to the dead. Because uh, in this passage, Moses says you know, he didn't offer these things to uh, the deceased. But the biggest contrast here and the big takeaway is that while these other nations viewed sin as a trespass against the temples and practices primarily, and then by extension, that of God, Israel was the other way around. Sin was considered a trespass against God himself, but that may have come through a trespass uh, against the temple, a violation of worship practices, or even just uh, a sin against their fellow man, but the ultimate uh, sin was ultimately a trespass against God in every case. Now, finally, let's talk a little bit about uh, death and the underworld. Now, uh, each of the nations kind of had their own unique views on it, but probably one of the closest uh, views to that of Israel came out of Mesopotamia, in that upon death, it was viewed that a person became this ghostly entity. And in the afterlife, it was considered that there was no judgment, but there was also no joyful existence possible. They just simply existed in a gloomy land of no return. And this land of no return was sectioned off from the land of the living. And they existed in this place where there was no light and there was no food. Uh, so that kind of sheds light on why the people had these household gods where you know, they offered food and drink to, uh, to their deceased ancestors because they just kind of thought that uh, basically if, you know, if their surviving relatives didn't offer that, then in the afterlife they didn't have food or drink. Now, 
by extension, the, the concept of burial was a very big deal in those times. It was considered essential for a deceased person's proper entry into the underworld. Uh, specifically with the Mesopotamians, they believed that the living and the dead continued a permanent relationship and formed an ongoing community. Now, this kind of seems um, contradictory to the fact that they believed that this was that the underworld was a a place that was sectioned off from the living. It kind of seems almost contradicting that okay, well, are they in community or are they prevented from interacting with that now? This would have been a big deal because if you remember our earlier discussion on community, community is where they found their identity. And so, you know, if the dead were sectioned off from the land of the living, they didn't have a community and therefore they didn't have an identity. They just, they were a nobody. And that was a big deal. Now, accompanying burial, just like in today, there were uh, there was a time of mourning, uh, and in those days, some of the mourning practices th that were very common was that of, you know, tearing clothing, wearing sackcloth, putting ashes in your hair, or even shaving the head. Now, you know, we don't have these things today, but we do have things that people generally do in a state of mourning and in a state of grieving, and they had that there because, it, again, the loss of their loved one, that was a big deal. Now, it was also viewed that in the absence of a proper burial and maintenance of the grave, it was viewed that the deceased would just be doomed to wander without rest. And, you know, a lack of proper burial was actually even seen as a curse. And three common threads in this curse was that, one, the body was left unburied. Two, because it was left unburied, it served as food for the animals, so the body was basically... Uh, it could be desecrated, and three, uh, the body was basically just considered refuse on the face of the earth. In other words, this person is no longer a, a human being, but they're just garbage on the earth, and that that was a huge insult. And in fact, we even see uh, some nations, uh, for example, Assyria, would actually, when they went out on their military conquest they would uh, threaten and even punish their conquered enemies by desecrating burial places. And it was a, an attempt to render the deceased at, to be restless spirits. They would dig up the grave, and they, uh, it was thought that they, would, they were dooming those people. And, you know, personally, I think that this would provoke great fear because, you know, they were taking the identity away. They were dooming them to live this miserable existence. And it even probably added to that in this thought that, you know, even in death, I can't escape the wrath of these enemies. They, they are still going to punish me even when I cross over. So now, similarly, uh, the Hebrews had their own view uh, the afterlife, and it was very similar to the Mesopotamians. So they considered that afterlife was spent in this place called Sheol. It was the land of the dead, and uh, it was this uncertain state of existence. Uh, so you were this entity in this shadowy image of your living former self. You were basically just a shadow. Now, by contrast, uh, 
views on the dead, whereas some nations had uh, additional practices during their mourning. Uh, Yahweh condemns some of these, uh, for example, like uh, cutting of the body. Some of these nations would show mourning by cutting their body and inflicting pain upon themselves, and Yahweh says, no, you will not do that. So, you know, all of these things, that was the context of the world that Israel lived in, and so if we're going to, you know, understand more about why God would bring charges against Israel for religious practices and why that was such a big deal, we need to understand more about that context. And so I hope that this episode will help to serve as an introduction to those common threads. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, or even just want to say hello, feel free to email me at laymansbiblepodcast at gmail.com. That's laymansbiblepodcast at gmail.com.